Like, as you know, I spent the day with, with Elon today. He just gave me this burnt hair. Do you know what this is? I have no idea. It's a cologne that's burnt hair. I think it's also important for people to understand that what you're doing, Lex, there's no precedent for it. Sure, there have been interviews before. There have been podcasts before. There have been discussions before. You're, you're a pioneer. You're, the, you're literally the tip of the spear. And on the flip side of that, so we trained, and then after that, we played Diablo 4. I don't know what that is. I don't play video games, sorry. G'day, and welcome to Surfing the Discourse. This is uh, the show. Our apologies for the uh, radio accent. I'll try to jettison that. This is the show where we deep dive into the conversations that are happening right now. We try to figure out who is talking sense and who is talking nonsense. I am Jack, and we're going to keep it a little bit more informal and off the cuff because, you know, you didn't sign up for some professional-sounding radio host, did you? you? You sign up for some dude riffing off the cuff about all sorts of culture wars issues and just, you know, spilling the contents of his brain haphazardly and untidily over the microphone. And that is exactly what you're going to get. Okay, so what are we going to be discussing this week? What am I going to be spilling over the airways? Uh, well, first things first, what I wanted to do was check in with our old pal, Gad Sad. Now, for the stalwart fans, loyal supporters of this show, of whom I'm sure there are hordes, um, you will recollect that in episode two, we did in fact cover Gad Sad. And so if you didn't catch the episode, then uh, you might want to check it out because it is a doozy. Um, but anyway, you might be like, why are we, why are we uh, peeping Gadsad again? Haven't we covered him already? Well, yes, yes, but it's always interesting to check in with our old friends and see what they're up to. And as it happens, Gadsad's been spouting more of the, the usual, more of the same nonsense. And so we'll just briefly check in with the guy. We won't rehash anything, we'll just, you know, just a brief flyover. Um, but then after that, we will zoom over to our friends Lex Friedman and Andrew Huberman. Andrew Huberman is a neuroscientist and science communicator par excellence, um, perhaps spreader of some dubious scientific ideas, we'll see, we'll see. But he was recently on Lex Huberman's podcast, these two are best buds. These two are loyal friends, deeply committed and uh, devoted to one another, even perhaps enamored with one another. We'll see what happens there. Okay, so we're going to start with Gadsad, and I'm also going to do something a little bit different today, which is I'm going to be listening along live. Usually I just insert the clips afterwards. I'll do that with some of them, but... I'm going to listen along live and pause it as I feel there are things to be said, things to be pointed out. So yeah, listen along with me. So what's Gad been up to? Uh, well, the guy has gotten himself into some hot water. He's gotten himself into deep trouble. There's been enormous blowback uh, for something he did. It sent shockwaves through the internet, the aftershocks of which are still rumbling through the social media sphere. And of course, you will have uh, no doubt heard what I'm referring to is Gad's horrendous, his appalling comment, joke that he made on Joe Rogan about the accent of Quebec French, I believe, or some some accent anyway, in Quebec, which is a city <laughs> in Canada. 
I'm going to reveal my geographical ignorance here. It's a place in Canada where Gad lives, and he made fun of a certain accent spoken by Quebec people. Now, I was being tongue-in-cheek. I don't think that many of you will have heard of this unless you follow Gad Sad directly. But the reality is that he made a joke, and I'm sure there's been a pile-on on Twitter to some extent on his particular Twitter feed. But it's <laughs> he makes a huge fuss about it, and he is really hamming it up and talking about all of the hate he is receiving. So we'll go ahead and listen to a few clips from a recent podcast he did, or a recent YouTube episode, whatever they are. Um, so here we go. Here's the first clip. If anything, it is disappointing to see that in a so-called inclusive society, people can very, very quickly show their hatred of immigrants, their hatred of people from the Middle East, their hatred of Jews. And this is for someone who's been living here since 1975. Okay, pausing it. This is... Wow. Wow, the hypocrisy. So he's accusing all of the people who are coming out of the woodwork, all of these, this multitude of people, apparently, that are giving him flack for his comments and he's gonna he's gonna call them all bigots he's gonna accuse them all of anti-semitism and saying that they dislike people from the middle east like remember his whole shtick is to rail against exactly this kind of behavior he's constantly inveighing against the left's uh, reading of bigotry into everything and like over attributing racism and he's doing exactly the same thing the guy is a hypocrite par excellence unbelievable so apparently I haven't yet gotten the street creds of having lived long enough to be able to make fun as a Quebecer of the Quebecer accent. Not good people. That's not the way we want to live life. I was disappointed that not uh, that there weren't more uh, folks who, you know, high-profile folks who, you know, weighed in on the matter. <laughs> He's disappointed that the likes of Joe Rogan and other prominent figures didn't weigh in on this all-important matter of Gad getting flack for having made fun of the Quebec accent. He's acting like this is something everybody knows about and that this made like global news or something. Look, the, reali <laughs> the reality of the situation is, and I Google it, like Google Gad sad accent. There's like a sprinkling of, art there's a handful of articles, and I mean a handful and they're all like written by Canadian-based publications. Like, for example, there's one from The Globe and Mail, a Canadian publication. And what that article said was, quote, that Gad created a minor brouhaha in Quebec last week by calling the accent an affront to human dignity. <laughs> created a minor brouhaha. I mean, that's Exactly what it was, a minor brouhaha in Quebec, among Quebecans, probably those who have Twitter accounts and were typing in their indignate, indignant comments to Gad. And yeah, my God, he, he how self-absorbed, <laughs> how fucking narcissistic do you have to be to expect that these people should speak out on your behalf? It's absurd. Uh, anyway, we'll, we'll keep playing some more clips. It does continue. It can't be the case that we live in a society where a professor with my record, with my sense of dignity and honor, who, who doesn't have a bad bone in my body. 
Oh, listen to how he says that. With my dignity. Somebody as important as me. Jeez. Right? I mean, I love Quebec. I love Quebec society. I'm, I'm still in Quebec in part because my family and my wife's family are here because we've grown up here. Yes, I don't like the Joal accent. Uh, let me repeat it. I find it very unattractive, but so do millions of people. And saying so does not make me Himmler. And speaking about the issue doesn't make me a victim because a lot of people said, oh, enough Jew with your now you're playing the victim. Receiving hundreds of death threats and insults and is not me playing victim. It's me documenting what happens to someone in today's reality where they say something that someone finds offensive, right? In some places in the Middle East, you draw a, an image of a prophet and it's off with your head. Well, what happened here? I made a joke about an accent. Well, it's off with his metaphorical head. So there you have it. Yep. He just did that. He just compared what happened to him with somebody being beheaded. Him getting some nasty comments and DMs on Twitter. Probably a handful of death threats that you know aren't going to be credible. That is akin to a beheading. Yes, this metaphorical head has been sundered from its shoulders. By God, Gad, you are a character. Anyway, we've got one last clip from this little 12-minute segment that he did. This is right at the end where he is plugging his book, uh, The Sad Truth About Happiness. So there you have it, folks. The Sad Truth About Happiness is doing quite well. Please let help me keep the momentum going. As I said, order a copy. It's, it's a really, it's a fun book. It's not about all this parasitic stuff. It's, it's positive. It's optimistic. Not about all this parasitic stuff. As I said on the last episode, I got a digital copy of this book and I just searched, keyword searched the term woke and there was like 15 or so entries in a book about happiness. And he's claiming it doesn't have, it doesn't have any of that parasitic stuff. No, no, no. It's all happiness and, and sunshine and rainbows. Good God. The guy is a malignant, self-absorbed, narcissistic piece of work and anyway we're going to move right along from him we're going to be taking ourselves to greener pastures uh still not the most verdant and luxuriant pastures that we might travel to sorry for the metaphor but these these are the pastures grazed by the likes of lex friedman and andrew huberman i always forget his name i want to call him david huberman for some reason but it's Andrew, Andrew Huberman. So these two cows are grazing on certain pastures that we shall now explore ourselves and frolic about and have a little bit of joyous fun, shall we? So Lex and Andrew Huberman, what are they talking about? So they had this podcast recently on Lex's show. You can check it out if you're willing to put yourself through that. I mean, no, it's not that bad. You know, it's just classic Lex and, and Huberman dynamics, I suppose. If you're familiar at all with these guys, you will have picked up on a few motifs in their way of conversing and the stuff they talk about, topics they bring up. And so we're going to be seeing a little bit of that in the clips that I'm going to play. This isn't going to be a comprehensive analysis of either of the two guys. I am going to be pointing out some 
shortcomings in what they are talking about, some of their reasoning shortcomings. You know, this is a theme of the show. I like to get into people's epistemic hygiene, I suppose we can call it. And as we will see, they don't really wash their hands as much as perhaps they ought to for a couple of stand-up scientists. You know, Huberman is this dyed-in-the-wool neuroscientist, you know, brass tacks guy. He likes to champion a very rigorous approach to understanding well, in his case, it's the brain. He's a neuroscientist. And so we would expect to see that reflected in what he talks about in all sorts of subjects, right? Right? No. I mean, there are a few instances that I picked up on in this particular episode in which Huberman doesn't really acquit himself as well as you would expect him to. And that's fine. It's not necessarily an indictment of the guy. As I say, it's not a comprehensive analysis. This is just one conversation that they had but you know it's worth pointing this stuff out it's worth knowing if somebody is prone to kind of lapses in reasoning to know whether or not you ought to bring a healthy dose of skepticism along when you're listening to them a big old grain of salt or whether you can just let your mind kind of let the pores of your mind open up and just absorb whatever it is they're telling you and my advice is to tread with some caution especially when Andrew is talking outside his realm of expertise. Um, so it's very possible that Andrew Huberman is perfectly reliable in his own domain, his own bailiwick, but I can attest to the fact that outside of his domain, he at least leaves a little bit to be desired in some of what I've seen of him. So I want to be fair to the guy, you know, I, uh, I can't make, again, I can't make categorical claims about it but anyway what about lex friedman do we trust what this fella has to say who is lex by the way if you don't know he is an ai researcher i believe he's heavy into the programming he is affiliated in some way with mit although i'm not sure what the extent of that affiliation is i have a feeling it was kind of overplayed i have some dim recollection of there being a controversy about that but not 100% sure. So anyway, this is who Lex is. He loves AI. He loves robots. He loves love. He really loves love. Goodness me. You, you, you can't go five minutes of listening to Lex without him prating on about the power of love and the profundity and the poetry and the magic of the universe and of existence and of the beauty of even the objects around you, which you, you, thought, that, you thought that was just a mundane cup sitting in front of you. Did you? No, no, no. It's, uh, that cup contains the universe. You know, if you, if you imagine where that cup has been, how it got here, its, its story, then you'll understand the principles of the universe. I'm obviously parodying him, but not really, because he's literally said that exact thing, or at least something along those lines, and maybe I'll pull that clip up. This is from another episode that Lex did on his podcast. I honestly, because I, I don't think, I don't know where you got that glass, but that glass exists and I forgot it exists. And it was really fun to me to know that now it's there. Like, I love that glass and the water that's in it because it's freaking awesome. Like somebody made that glass, right? Like mm -hmm. they, and like not have many mistakes. And like there's, a, and the way bends light in interesting ways and the way water bends light in interesting ways. Like I can see part of your arm through that water. That's freaking amazing. Everything is amazing. Lex Friedman, eh? this is one of his shticks, his tropes. He's always getting overly sentimental, mawkish. 
I mean, a lot, of, a lot of people obviously seem to vibe with it. Personally, I don't, and maybe that's because I'm an overly cynical and curmudgeonly person. Or maybe it's just because, like, I don't know, I can be in those moods, those, like, sentimental moods where I'm, like, fully appreciating the wonder and beauty of the universe, and I have this kind of thrill within me as I contemplate the depth and magic of existence. But that happens fairly rarely in my own case. And when somebody, you know, when Lex trots out these poetical little odes to life and, and the, the wonder of existence so frequently, it's it kind of gets fatiguing, you know? Like, I, <laughs> I, I'm sure his audience can't be in that state of mind like the whole way through. And uh, yeah, this is something that I've wondered about in the past. Like, is it performative on Lex's part? Is he sincere? Is he in earnest when he talks about it? And I feel like you can't really deny that he's there's some sincerity because of the frequency with which he talks about it. But then at the same time, I can't imagine that he's genuinely experiencing, he's genuinely feeling these emotions as he's kind of gushing about the origins of a cup or something. But uh you be the judge. I've got an example here from, uh, this is the ad reads that Lex does prior to the interview actually starting. And he's going to exhibit this kind of childlike, bleeding heart, mawkish kind of attitude, even in the ad reads. So listen to this. This show is brought to you by Inside Tracker, a service I use to track biological data. as data that comes from my own body. It's really interesting to consider all the different signals that we send from our body, conscious and subconscious. That's something I talked to Andrew in this podcast about, of all the thoughts and ideas and memories, real or fabricated or morphed or modified or recycled that lurk somewhere in the unconscious that when brought to the surface can uh, bring a kind of relief or reinvigoration of the way we see the world around us. Goodness me, I forgot how long this went on for. Sorry, I will skip ahead. But <laughs> keep in mind, this is Lex plugging Inside Tracker, which is some sort of device maybe that records some of your biomarkers, like heart rate, and maybe does a bit of analysis on it and tells you like, if you need more sleep or something. So yeah, this is him <laughs> talking about that. I'm just going to skip ahead now in the ad read. So here we go. Billions and billions and billions of organisms half of which are cells, the other half are bacteria, all working together to create this experience that we humans call life. And it's so interesting that by collecting that data, by listening to the signal that this entire gigantic complex biological systems create, we can uh, start to try to figure out how to improve the functioning of it. At first top down, in a centralized manner, sort of listening to the music that the orchestra creates and trying to uh, maybe rewrite the music or adjust the music or edit the music. It's interesting, this whole journey we're on. And I'm glad there's people that um, turn that kind of journey into a company and try to help people by, you know, making the data from their body accessible and giving advice based on that data, making that advice accessible. Mm. All right, Lex. Wow, that's brilliantly done. Like, yeah, I mean, he has to be leaning into this, right? Like, there was what? So the body's music. He's glad that this company is like tapping into the music, and then it's like almost an afterthought that you can actually use this thing for something concrete and constructive in your life. 
but uh you know a few minutes of that ad read is just devoted to him waxing lyrical about the wonder and beauty of the body and the symphony of all of these signals and so on so yeah you have to wonder if this is just lex hamming it up and doing his thing because this is what he's kind of known for i don't know he also is very asmr as you're listening to him he, he kind of talks in this like drowsy tone you know he's really up close to the microphone like this and he's talking about how wonderful it all is and uh yeah i wonder if the the company that he's reading for like gets exasperated with with lex's like digressions and his flights of fancy they're like just tell them what the product does lex they don't they don't need to hear about the symphony of the body just tell them what it's for tell them that you like using it <laughs> but of course uh, yeah lex cannot be contained the love just spills forth uh anyway like so there's 10 minutes of ads that he does before the show starts i don't know whether that's standard i, I don't often see shows that have that amount of ads it is rather obscene <laughs> We can play a game um, actually with some of these ad reads. I feel like we could. This could be like a, a bit. This could be a segment moving forward whenever we cover Lex. But try to guess what. I'll play another clip from an ad. You just try to guess what product that uh, Lex is trying to plug here. Books like Man's Search for Meaning reveal that it is indeed in the mind where the interpretation of the world's catastrophes lie. And so you have to equip your mind with the best tools in order to interpret those catastrophes, those tragedies, those hardships correctly. Anyway, check it out and get special savings when you go to 8sleep.com slash flex. Did you guess 8sleep? Yes, that was for a bed. He's talking about needing to equip your mind such that you can interpret tragedies. And uh, apparently you need this particular bed in order to do that, I suppose. So yeah... Anyway, we will move right along. So what are we going to see? I'm just going to kind of move haphazardly through the clips that I have here and I'll try to give it some cohesion as we go through by bringing up the motifs and themes that they are sort of relevant to. Okay, so the first general theme we're going to be exploring here is Andrew Huberman's personal epistemic hygiene. So we're just going to look at some examples and spoiler alert they don't reflect too well on huberman at least as per my analysis but you might have a different take and you're perfectly welcome to it but uh yeah we'll just go through a couple of examples so first of all andrew seems to be very enamored with the idea of the unconscious mind and the idea that we can explore our unconscious and discover our true self there so I'll play just this first clip to get us warmed up on the topic. Here uh, he is, well, and responding to a question that Lex has about the Jungian shadow inside ourselves. What do you think is there in that subconscious? What, what do you think of the Jungian shadow? Is, what, what, what's there? You know, there's this idea, as you're familiar with too, I'm sure, that this Jungian idea that there are, we all have all things inside of us, that all of us have the capacity to be evil, to be good, et cetera, but that some people express one or the other to greater extent. But he also mentioned that there's a unique... Uh, when he says he, he's talking about this guy, Paul Conti, who he uh, really sings the praises of. Paul Conti is a psychiatrist, and 
He's big on the idea of trauma as the root cause of many of our behavioral problems, many mental health issues. And so that's who he's referring to when he says he. Category of people, maybe two to 5% of people that don't just have all things inside of them, but they actually spend a lot of time exploring a lot mm -hmm. of those things, mm -hmm. the darker recesses, the shadows, their own shadows. Mm -hmm. um, mm, so what do we think of this Jungian idea so far? Uh, to be fair, Andrew Huberman didn't actually endorse it explicitly. He said it was, you know, he presented it as an idea. But it's clear to me from this episode and from, I listened to his podcast with Paul Conti, the psychiatrist I mentioned earlier, and it seems pretty clear that Andrew is at least sympathetic to like Freudian and Jungian ideas of the unconscious mind and there was a lot of what I consider to be fairly spurious speculation in a lot of what they were talking about, uh, if I recall. For example, uh, Huberman brings up the idea of yeah, this Freudian, Freudian idea of repetition compulsion, which is where people who have suffered from some trauma unconsciously seek out situations in which they would be exposed to a similar kind of trauma again. Classic example being somebody who was in an abusive relationship and they were driven by these unconscious forces back to new relationships which were bound also to be abusive. And the idea is that the unconscious mind is kind of uncomfortable with this lack of control over the partner. And so it's sort of seeking out new situations in which it is able to reassert its control. So it's, it's like trying again over and over. So it's a very like prototypically Freudian idea uh, in that for one thing, it's not easily falsifiable. And it kind of invokes this idea of, you know, these unconscious forces, which in true Freud style tend to be quite complicated they, it's like there's a homunculus within you, like this unconscious agent with its own agenda. And, you know, it's, it's trying to do all these things in opposition to what is good for you, the conscious self. And the reason that these are difficult to falsify is that so many different explanations are invoked. So many different like agendas of the unconscious mind are invoked for different situations. There doesn't seem to be like a principled basis by which uh, this or a framework which kind of explains what unconscious forces are acting in what situations. And another thing is that it's not really rooted in evolutionary psychology. Uh, to be fair to Huberman in that episode, he does at least attempt to try try to understand it in terms of evolutionary logic but he's altogether just far too credulous i think with the explanation given by conti so yeah i'm not necessarily calling uh huberman like a freudian but he does certainly seem to evince a credulity and like a sympathy for freudian ideas and i don't necessarily mean freud's frameworks or ideas specifically but just that general kind of strand of thought which i guess you can call psychodynamics or psychoanalytics the idea of these kind of spooky and complicated unconscious forces at work so yeah i think andrew has a kind of fondness or a sort of appetite for this way of thinking which seems to be in tension with his more scientifically rigorous mind 
And it seems to go back uh, a long way with Andrew because as he reveals in this podcast, he's been doing therapy every week since he was a child. So he obviously uh, has a kind of strong predisposition towards these kind of ideas. Um, but so I want to be, I don't want to be unfair to the guy. Like I'm, I'm not going to categorically label him as this sort of Freudian, Mysterian kind of thinker. But there do seem to be some red flags here and there. And I'll just give another example from this conversation that he had with Lex, in which Andrew brings up this idea that he's enamored with, which has a kind of Freudian streak, as we'll see. But it's this idea of covert versus overt contracts, which apply to all sorts of human relationships. So I'll let him set that up. It's very interesting, and it gets to something that I hope uh, we'll have an opportunity to talk about because it's something that I'm obsessed with lately is this notion of overt versus covert contracts, right? There are overt contracts where you exchange work for money or you exchange any number of things in an overt way. But then there are covert contracts, um, and those take on a very different form and always lead to, uh, in my belief, bad things. Now, okay, so overt contract would be we both want to do some work together. We're going to make some money. You get X percentage. I get X percentage. Overt. Covert contract, which is, in my opinion, bad, always bad, would be we're going to do some work together. You're going to get a percentage of money. I'm going to get a percentage of money. Could look just like the overt contract. But secretly, I'm resentful that I got the percentage I got. So what I start doing is covertly taking something else. What do I take? Maybe I take the opportunity to jab you verbally every once in a while. Mm -hmm. Maybe I take the opportunity to show up late. Mm -hmm. Maybe I take the opportunity to get to know one of your coworkers so that I might start a business with them. That's covert contracting. Mm -hmm. And you see this sometimes in romantic relationships. One person, we won't set the male or female in any direction here and just say, it's I'll make you feel powerful if you make me feel desired. Okay, great. There's nothing explicitly wrong about that contract if they both know and they both agree. But what if it's, I'll do that, but I'll have kids with you so you feel powerful. You'll have kids with me so I feel desired, but secretly, I don't want to do that. Or they, one person says, I don't want to do that, or both don't. So what they end up doing is saying, okay, so I expect something else. I expect you to do certain things for me, or I expect you to pay for certain things for me. Covert contracts are the signature of everything bad. Overt contracts are the signature of all things good. Yeah. Okay. So the idea is that you've got overt and covert contracts and they apply to any relationship. So friendship, romantic relationship, a business partnership, perhaps. All this conceptual framework really is doing is like redefining these things as contracts. And so for those of you who listened to my episode last week on Jordan Peterson, you might recall the idea of loose fitting concepts, which are kind of concepts or conceptual frameworks that are couched at such an abstract level of detail that they can be applied to like any situation and they can't be shown to be wrong because they're just so abstract. And the fact that they seem to be able to apply to so many things makes them appear kind of deep. But the reality is they're just not very useful in virtue of how loose fitting they are and, and how like broadly applicable. So this seems like a, an example of that kind of thing. It seems like a kind of trivial observation that you can construe relationships as a contract. And so what the framework lets Huberman do is, is call any kind of dishonest behavior a 
covert contract. So it's not very enlightening. It's really just giving us new labels for things that we can already talk about quite happily. So that's the first uh, indictment of this thing is that it's just kind of a useless framework. But the second thing that Andrew does is he gives it sort of sort of he's got like three different explanations for why it occurs, for why we engage in covert contracts. And so the first one, as you heard in that clip, was that one partner is resentful of the conditions of the contract. And so they take it upon themselves to covertly uh, arrogate for themselves something more that wasn't in the original bargain. And keep in mind that this bargain or this contract uh, can be either explicit or tacit, right? Implicit. So like you can just apply it to any relationship whatsoever because you can always say that there was there's some tacit agreement uh, or contract in any relationship. But so that's one explanation that he has for why it occurs. But then he'll give another one in this clip. What ends up happening is that when people, I believe, don't feel safe, they feel threatened in some way. Like it's, they don't feel safe in a certain interaction. What they do is they start taking something else while still engaging in, in the exchange. So it's a way I think of creating a false sense of certainty, but I'll tell you covert contracts, the only certainty is that it's gonna end badly. The question is how badly? Okay, so that's his second explanation for why we engage in these covert contracts. It's not only that it's because one party is resentful of the conditions of the contract, it's also because we want to give ourselves a sense of certainty in the relationship. Um, it's kind of interesting that, you know, Andrew said that he was obsessed with this idea and yet he really hasn't managed to straighten out exactly what is contained in it. And it actually, it gets worse. So now he's going to give a third explanation for why we do it. And this one is even more Freudian. So listen to this. The trust piece is huge, um, you know, and, and that's where people start. I, you know, we don't want to focus on what works, not what doesn't work, but that's where I think people start engaging in these covert contracts. They're afraid of being betrayed, so they betray. Mm -hmm. um, they're afraid of giving up too much vulnerability, so they hide their vulnerability, or in the worst cases, they feign vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um, again, that's a covert contract that, that just simply undermines everything. It becomes one plus one equals two minus one to infinity. Okay, so that explanation there is is separate from the previous ones that he had given. Um, so this one is that essentially that you fear the person in the the other person in the contract doing something harmful or bad to you, and so you end up doing the bad or harmful thing to them. And I suppose this is like some unconscious drive within you. There's this like unconscious fear that they're going to do this thing to you. And so unconsciously you want to do that thing to them because who the hell knows why? Uh, this, uh, this way of thinking just really frustrates me because it doesn't make any sense. And so it's like, it does seem like there's this other side to Huberman uh, that is sympathetic to this kind of way of thinking. And that's a little bit sloppy. So again, like to to summarize the problem with this whole framework, first of all, it's like very loose fitting, very abstract. You can apply it to anything. And the fact that it's so loose fitting means that it's not very illuminating. It's really just the idea that we have relationships and that some people engage in dishonest behavior within those relationships. And then he, he tries to explain why we do these things, why we have these covert contracts. And he's got like three different explanations that don't really jive with one another 
and at least one of them is like distinctly Freudian this to me totally implausible idea of wanting to harm the person because you fear they're going to do that harm to you so before we move on from this topic I'll just uh, show a clip of Lex chiming in on the, the the subject of covert and overt relationships so here's Lex on the matter we all can kind of tell the difference between overt and covert like mm-hmm. we have a good sense. I think one of the benefits of having this characteristic of mine where I value loyalty, I've been extremely uh, fortunate to spend most of my life in overt relationships. And I think that creates a really fulfilling life. All right. So because Lex himself is so loyal, then he's able to have t- just 100% overt relationships. Except that the, the logic doesn't really check out, right? Because... Uh, it depends on what the other person is doing. Like you can be loyal to them, but that doesn't necessarily change, you know, the, according to Andrew, the, the unconscious dynamics in their head that might lead them to be engaging in a covert contract with you. <laughs> so, so maybe Lex, his trusting nature has led him to think that he's in all these overt relationships, but really he's in just, he, without knowing it, he's actually trapped in so many covert relationships. <laughs> I don't know, it's silly. But yeah, I just wanted to show the lack of logic there. There's a little bit of a deficiency in logic all around in that in that little aspect of the conversation. Um, anyway, speaking of Freud there may have been a little bit of a Freudian slip in something that Andrew said about Lex's podcast. Tell me what you think of this. And so there is a place where, you know, I mean, I I realize this is probably a kid's show too, so I want to keep it, you know, G-rated, but at some point for certain things, it makes sense to go, fuck that. Oh, burn, Lex. A kid's show, I realize this is probably a kid's show. Yeah, does he mean that? Was that a Freudian slip? You You be the judge. Um, okay, we're going to move on. So, uh, next clip, what do we have? This is Huberman on his morning meditation routine. Now, I should point out that if you, you know, if you haven't followed Andrew Huberman, did I call him David again? I might have just ignored that if I did. Uh, so, Andrew is very big into protocols, right? The, what he calls protocols, which are supposed to, supposed to be science-backed, evidence-based, uh, techniques, hacks for your body, for your mind, things like staring at the sun or no, uh, getting exposed, exposing yourself to sunlight in the morning. And supposedly this is, this helps to kind of anchor your circadian rhythm and help you sleep better at night and just generally improve your health, productivity, energy levels and so on. So he's big into all these kind of things. I think most of his followers are signed up for exactly this kind of stuff. It's like this like modern productivity, life hacks sort of stuff. And especially because it has the, apparently has the imprimatur of science behind it. It's doubly compelling to a lot of these people. So this is Andrew's shtick. So yeah, I mentioned that just to kind of give a bit of context for this clip where Andrew is going to tell us about his morning meditation routine. And I and then I have a, a meditation that I do that actually is where I think through with the different roles that I play. Mm-hmm. So I, like I start very basic. Um, I say, okay, I'm an animal. Like we are, we are like biologically animals, right? Mm-hmm. Human, you know, I'm a man. I'm a scientist, I'm a teacher, 
I'm a friend, I'm a brother, I'm a son. You know, I go through this, I have this list and I think about the different roles that I have. Interesting. I wonder um, what that process of like reminding yourself that you're an animal looks like. <laughs> Is he like on the ground, like beating his chest like a, a gorilla or something? And I wonder what happens, God forbid, if you were to forget one day to remind yourself of your animal nature. What would happen? Anyway, perhaps a bit mean to take the piss out of someone's morning meditation routine. Hey, we'll, we'll move on. Okay, so we're still kind of on the topic of Andrew Huberman's, at times, kind of uncritical accepting of certain things. So... Here's a clip of him talking about the Netflix show Chimp Empire. And for those of you who don't know, this show kind of centers on a troop of chimps. And by all accounts, it's a wonderful show. However, it does seem like the showrunners take quite a bit of license in interpreting the behavior of the chimpanzees and perhaps endow them with a bit more intelligence than might be warranted. At the very least, they're sort of stretching the interpretation of things uh, so as to create more drama. So personally, I would bring a healthy dose of skepticism to the viewing of that show. It's not that in principle it must be impossible for the chimps to be uh, thinking the thoughts that are being attributed to them, although I am personally dubious. Um, but it's more that like, in order to establish these things for a fact, a lot, of, a lot more work needs to be done. And in fact, you can find primatologists who you know are expressing a bit of skepticism about what is being claimed here anyway we'll we'll play the clip and i'll just point some things out as we go along expressing drive i've been watching this um series a little bit of uh chimp empire oh yeah so chimp empire is amazing right they have the head chimp he's not the head chimp but the 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 alpha in the group yep and he's getting older and so what does he do? Every once in a while, he goes on these vigor displays. Mm -hmm. He goes and he grabs branches, he starts breaking them, he starts thrashing them, and he's incredibly strong. And they're all kind of like watching. Then there are the, the ones that are subordinate to him, but not so, not so far behind. Yeah, so number two, three, and four males are aware that he's doing these vigor displays, but they're also aware because in primate evolution, they got some extra forebrain too, not as much as us, but they got some. And they're aware that the vigor displays are displays that, because they've done them as well in a different context, might not just be displays of vigor, but might also be an insurance policy against people seeing weakness. Okay, so he's going to go on to talk about how the subordinate chimps are then going to hatch a plan to overthrow the uh, alpha chimp on the basis that they've sort of seen through his facade. And I will play the rest of those clips, but I just want to pause here and point out there's a bit of a flaw in the reasoning here. So it actually doesn't matter whether or not the alpha chimps display here is performative or not, because the bottom line is, can he perform the display? Can he perform this unfakeable show of strength? And as Andrew Huberman pointed out, it does in fact display his immense strength. So I'm skeptical of the possibility that the subordinate chimps are actually like doing this kind of reflection where they, they consider that this could be just a performance. Because even if they were to do that reasoning, the reasoning wouldn't be relevant to anything, right? Like whether or not it's done performatively doesn't change the fact that the alpha chimp fundamentally is strong enough to keep you from overthrowing him. Even if we grant that the chimpan subordinate chimpanzees are capable of this kind of reflection, reflective thought, 
you're actually doing them a disservice by attributing to them these thoughts which actually don't make that much sense. Okay, so here's here's the thought process of the chimpanzee, according to Huberman here. So they're thinking, oh, well, I can see the alpha is putting on this display, and wow, he is strong. But, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's just doing that as a performance. So uh, therefore, he's not actually that strong, even though I've just seen him, like, break this tree in half. So, uh, yeah, me and my pal are going to get together and totally overthrow this guy who's, like, not actually strong because uh, it's a performance. Yeah, so I think that's doing a bit of a disservice to the chimpanzees here. So, anyway, I'm going to keep playing the rest of the clip. Okay, so now they start using that prefrontal cortex to do some interesting things. So in, in the interesting thing is, is number two and three start to line up a strategy to groom this guy, mm -hmm. but they are actually thinking about overtaking the entire troop, setting in a new alpha. But the current alpha did that to get where he is. So he knows that they're doing this grooming thing, but they not, might not be sincere about the grooming. So what does he do? He takes the whole troop on a raid to another troop and sees who will fight for him and who won't. This is advanced... Mm -hmm contracting of behavior yes it is very advanced but can we be sure that this is actually what's going on are these machinations that are being attributed to the chimpanzees accurate like i want to hear some primatologists and in fact there are uh, expressions of skepticism from at least one primatologist that i've seen regarding the show's interpretations and of course we should be skeptical because this show fundamentally is about creating a compelling drama involving chimps. So of course they're going to appeal to these sort of very human ideas and thought processes in trying to create this drama that is compelling to us. So look, what I will say is that perhaps Andrew Huberman is right in believing what the show is saying. But I think that even if that is the case... I think the correct stance is one of skepticism, is not to just credulously accept all these interpretations that are given by the show uh, until more work has been done to establish that this is actually what's going on in the chimps' brains. So anyway, that is another example, I think, of Andrew's lack of care. Um, but, you know, never let the truth get in the way of a good story, I suppose, is the uh, motto here. But anyway, I don't want to be too much of a wet blanket here. If you want to enjoy the show, I'll just go ahead and accept the narrative that's given because it would certainly be more compelling that way. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm being overly nitpicky and, and academic here. But somebody like Andrew Huberman, who presents himself as a rigorous neuroscientist and academic, I think he should do better, especially when it comes to issues in cognitive science. So, okay. On to the next topic. So... Anyone who follows Lex Friedman will know that he often name drops Elon Musk and Joe Rogan. And of course, this episode was no exception. Elon Musk got a couple of mentions. Joe Rogan got one. So I'll play these clips here. First of all, here's uh, Lex talking about his day that he spent with Elon Musk recently. Like, as you know, I spent the day with, with Elon today. He just gave me this burnt hair. Do you know what this is? I have no idea. I'm sure there's actually, there should be a, a Huberman Lab episode on this. It's a cologne that's burnt hair. And it's like supposedly a really intense smell. And it I is. Me a smell. To please, it's so, not going to leave your nose. That's okay. Well, that's okay. Yep. Interesting. Elon Musk gifting Lex burnt hair cologne. 
Okay, and so in this, um, there's another clip here, and he's going to, at the end of it, he's going to come back to talking about Elon Musk. But I'm just going to play the full clip because there's something else I want to point out. It's a pet peeve of mine. Uh, so the context for this clip is that they are discussing the fight that was rumored to happen between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. So here's that clip. Well, it's also going to be an instance where uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk exchange bodily fluids. They bleed. There's one of the things about fighting, you know. I think it was in um, that book. It's a great book, uh, Fighter's Heart, mm-hmm. where he talks about, you know, sort of the intimacy of of sparring. I have I only rolled jujitsu with you once, but there was a period of time where I boxed, and um, which I don't recommend. Um, I got hit. I hit some guys, and I definitely got hit back. Um, I'd spar on Wednesday nights when I lived on San Diego. Um, and, um, you know, when you spar with somebody, even if they hurt you, especially if they hurt you, you know, you see that person afterwards and there's a, there's an intimacy, right? You're, ex- it was, it was in that book fighter's heart where he explains, you know, you're exchanging bodily fluids with a stranger, right? And cre- there's a, you're in your primitive mind. Mm-hmm. And so there's an intimacy there that, that persists. So you go together through a process of fear, mm-hmm. anxiety, like. Yeah, when they get you, you nod. I mean, you watch somebody like catch somebody. If you know, not so much in professional fighting, but if people are sparring, that they, they catch you, you you acknowledge that they caught you. Like, like you got me there. Yeah, so I'm just going to pause it here to point out this thing that I find really annoying, which is when people they act as though their hobby or their sport or their thing is like uniquely special in some way, in some like really important and like profound and deep way, like. In this case, they're talking about how fighting is unique and sort of bringing one closer to the person that one fights because there's this exchange of bodily fluids and there's this like tapping into primal emotions. And so you come out the other side and you've formed this like intimate bond with somebody. But people do this kind of thing. I read an article recently where someone was talking about bird watching and how uh, that's like uniquely peaceful and like it brings you into in touch with nature in a way that nothing else can and like you know you'll get you get water skiers talking about the what how their thing is so special and it's like in in all of these cases it's not unique there's other ways of getting like sure sure i'll grant you that that it can provide these wonderful things but there's other things as well that do that and like <laughs> i don't know it just it annoys me unreasonably i i'll concede that but it's just something that i see all the time and uh yeah there was a little bit of a, a hint of it here so yeah keep an eye out for this my thingism we can call it keep keep an eye out for it cuz i'm sure you'll see it elsewhere so i'll play the rest of the clip now and on the flip side of that, so we trained, and then after that, we played Diablo 4. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I don't play video games, sorry. Uh, so first of all, that's Lex bringing it back to Elon and what he did with Elon. But um, Huberman's response here is hilarious. I don't know what that is. I don't play video games, sorry. It's like, well, you do know what it is, Andrew, because you knew it was a video game. So his response is just interesting. It's like, I feel like the polite response, like the, you know, the... The overt response, <laughs> let's say, would be to be like, oh, Diablo, uh, that's a video game I hear. How is that? Or, oh, was that fun playing with Elon Musk? But no, he's like, I don't know what that is. I don't play video games. Sorry. It's like he's trying to say, you know, he's trying to uh, indicate that, you know, I only do productive things with my time. I don't play childish games. <laughs> I feel like he's throwing subtle shade on on Lex here because he's, 
he's like in a covert contract where he's trying to like take jabs. <laughs> I don't know. That's kind of what it seems like, right? Uh, what else? Why, why else would you do that? I suppose there's like a, a stigma in some circles against video games because they seem to be like a drain on productivity. Uh, I think people like associate them with nerds or something. And so at least there used to be like a pretty prominent stigma. But um, yeah, so I feel like either that's Huberman trying to like distance himself from video games because he like feels the stigma or he's trying to like, he's trying to like do some superiority thing like, nah, not me, mate. The video games, <laughs> you go ahead, mate. You play your silly games with Elon. <laughs> I'm going to fucking, I'm going to, Record a podcast and like write a paper and shit. I don't know. Crack me up. Anyway, so continuing with uh, Lex's name dropping in the context of talking about what makes a strong relationship, of course he has to invoke the big, the, the wonderful Joe Rogan. So here's him doing that. One thing to do, I think, by way of advice, is listen to people who are in long-term successful relationships. That's like, uh, it seems dumb, but like, like uh, we both know and are friends with Joe Rogan, who's been in a long-term, really great relationship, and he's been an inspiration to me. So you take advice from that guy. Definitely. Definitely. Joe Rogan, man, he's your guy. Uh, yeah, so that's that's classic. That's vintage stuff right there. Um, and some more vintage stuff is the <laughs> Huberman and Lex constantly uh, flattering one another. I'm trying to say this in a way that's not like invoking the concept of masturbation, but <laughs> there's something to that. So here is a bit of uh, flattery that Huberman is heaping very uh, generously onto Lex. So here's one example. Like I've had that experience of friendship recently. It's just it's not not really friendship, but like oh, you get each other with with humans, not um, not in a romantic setting. Right, friendship. Yeah, just friendship. Well, but not. I, but dare I say, I felt that way about you when, when yeah. we met. Right. But we also like, this dude's cool, and he's smart, and he's funny, and he's driven, and he's giving, and he um and he's got an edge, and um like I want to want to learn from him, want to hang out with him. Still not done, though. There's more praise coming. Here's another clip. Well, the best lecturers, as you know, and you're a phenomenal lecturer, so you embody this as well. Phenomenal. By God, that is some fulsome praise indeed. And I've sort of, I haven't listened to Lex's full lecture, but I, I did uh, look, uh, look one up on YouTube just to see if it was phenomenal. And uh, I don't know, it wasn't bad, but it, it certainly didn't quite, for me, reach the uh, the threshold of being phenomenal. But everyone's entitled to their opinion. Um, okay, so we're not done with the praise, though. Not, not only is Lex a phenomenal lecturer, but his podcast is groundbreaking. It is earth-shatteringly important and new and unique and novel. And here's Hube talking about that. The, the thing I love about your podcast the most to be honest, these days, is the surprise of like, I don't know who the hell is going to be there. Yeah. It's almost like like I get a little nervously excited yeah. about when a new episode comes out because I have no, no <laughs> yeah. idea. No idea. And, you know, I mean, I have some guesses based on what you told me during the break. I mean, you, yeah. you've got some people where it's just like, whoa, Lex yeah. is went there. Awesome. Can't wait. Click. You know, they're, you know, I think that's really cool. Like you're constantly surprising people. So you, you're doing it so well, like it's such a high level. And I think it's also important for people to understand that what you're doing, Lex, 
there's no precedent for it. Sure, there have been interviews before, there have been podcasts before, there are discussions before, but it's not like how many of your peers can you look to to find out how best to do the content like yours? Zero. There's one peer, you. And so, you know, that should give you great peace and great excitement because you're you're a pioneer. You're the you're literally the tip of the spear. Pioneer. Oh baby. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I wonder, I wonder what it is that is so unique about Lex's podcast. Is it, and I guess this is a, a chance to summarize the episode now because uh, we are drawing to a close. That was the last clip. So yeah, what's unique about Lex's podcast? Is it is it the way he gushes about concepts of love and profundity and transcendence and the beauty of existence and all of that good stuff? I mean, yeah, Lex certainly does seem to have that market cornered. Uh, I can't see any challenges in that space. Um, certainly, <laughs> I don't imagine anybody else can do ad reads quite like Lex can. So, yeah, he's certainly unique in that sense. Um, perhaps the uniqueness is the name dropping of uh, Elon Musk and Joe Rogan with this level of frequency. I don't know. Certainly, some things he does uniquely well. Um, this hasn't really focused too much on Lex, and maybe a future episode will really get into the, the substance of Lex Friedman himself, the man behind the poetry. And uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll leave that for a future date. But no, this episode focused mostly on Andrew Huberman, and what, did we, what are the takeaways from Andrew? Well, the guy seems to be fairly sympathetic to a kind of certain strand of thought, psychoanalytic or psychodynamic Freudian type of way of thinking. Maybe that might be unfair to pin him with that label, but there was, as we saw, some evidence to suggest a degree of sympathy for those ideas that might not be completely becoming of a, you know, a rigorous dyed-in-the-wool neuroscientist. He also left something to be desired in various other points of his conversation there. There was some weak argumentation. Of course, it must be said that I am I am deliberately cherry-picking, you know, bad argumentation. I'm not, like, giving the full context of the conversation. Uh, it's not like he gets everything wrong. He's, he's fine most of the time. But if you can pick out, you know, several examples in the span of a couple-hour interview, uh, it, I don't know, it might be just... At the very least, what it is, is cause to have a bit of a grain of salt when you listen to certain things that Andrew is talking about, especially when they're not within his bailiwick of neuroscience and probably within the particular subfield of neuroscience that he's expert in. I don't know. I haven't looked too much into his his main kind of content, which is him talking about like protocols based in like physiological studies of the mind and the body. And so maybe he gets most of that stuff right. I'm not sure. I might do a deep dive in the future. We'll see. But anyway, I'm going to wrap things up here. We're around about an hour. So I hope you have enjoyed this foray into the conversation of Lex and Huberman. And uh, yeah, join me again next week, around about, when I release my next episode. And yeah, see you then. <laughs> <laughs>